Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hi, my name is Charlotte. I'm calling in from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Love your podcast so far. Um, I have recently converted to being a vegan for mainly environmental reasons. And honestly, there are so many options that it's honestly, it hasn't been that hard. My question is about all of these super processed vegan products, like Trader Joe's nacho vegan cheese, all the cashew yogurt products. What's the kind of thought behind those and all the processing that goes into it and the water that's needed for the nuts? Like, is that better for the environment than if I just ate regular cheese and regular yogurt, I would love to know your thoughts. Thank you so much. Bye. Charlotte, thanks so much for your call, and congratulations on going vegan, and even more congratulations on finding that it's not that difficult, because for a lot of people, it's really hard. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a little easier in the People's Republic of Ann Arbor than it would be in some other places, but absolutely mazel tov. Uh, you're, you're doing a good thing for the climate and for nature. Animal agriculture has a huge environmental footprint, and you're shrinking yours. As, uh, and as we've said, Tamar and I, you know, we, we still eat meat and other animal products. So good for you. Uh, to answer your question, yes. You know, we did a fake meat episode where we explained how it's way better for the climate than animal meat. And we did a fake milk episode where we explained that that's way better for the climate than dairy milk. So Trader Joe's fake cheese is almost certainly way better for the climate than regular cheese. Because, as we keep saying, cows are a climate nightmare. They got methane from their burps and farts. You got nitrous oxide from their manure. And worst of all, they just use ungodly amounts of land to produce tiny amounts of calories. So they're a huge deforestation problem. They also use way too much water. They create way too much pollution. (laughs) Stop me if you've heard this before. They're a problem. You don't mean that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sorry, though. We are not going to do a whole episode about fake cheese. No, we're not. But. We are going to do a whole episode on that very important question you asked, because so many people are concerned that these fake meat and fake dairy products are highly processed. And it comes up over and over again. And I think if you do the Venn diagram of, you know, one circle is people who care about the climate impact of their food, and the other circle is people who are concerned about eating too much processed food, you're going to have a lot of overlap. So the very people who are going to be compelled by these fake animal products are also going to be put off by the fact that they're they're highly processed and that's a huge problem because these fake animal products these these uh, call them alternative proteins that sounds a little better are really much better for the climate than the products that they can replace. But yeah, there's this whole thing where everybody just said, here's processed food, and it's like, I don't want to eat that. I remember I, when we were trying to name this this podcast, I suggested the food processors. That's a terrible and, name. And everybody was just like, no. No, that's no. a terrible name. <laughs> hey, I mean, it was better than carbonara. I, I kind of like carbonara. <laughs> 
The point is we didn't want to brand ourselves as food processors because processed food is the thing that people point to with a lot of justification as the root of our of a lot of our food problems. It is a nutritional evil in a lot of ways and in a lot of people's minds. And so today, Tamar is going to explain why Twinkies and Spam are actually really good for you. I'm totally not. Twinkies are exactly as bad as you think. But the way we talk about processed food is also bad. So yeah, today we're going to talk about processed food. And it's a subject that Tamar has been thinking and writing about for a long time. And it's a subject that I know mainly from my intimate relationship with Doritos. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna ask a bunch of ignorant questions that maybe some of you have been wondering about too. And Tamar is gonna help us understand this complicated and fascinating and super important issue. I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Carbonara. <laughs> now you see how lame that would have sounded? <laughs> no, this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So tomorrow, when we started talking about doing a processed food episode, the first thing I realized was that I wasn't even exactly sure what processed food was, right? It feels like everything's processed food if it's not a banana or a potato or something that nobody did anything to, right? I mean, what is it? Well, guess what, Mike? It's everything other than a banana or a potato that nobody has done anything to. And so I kind of want to start off with the area of processing that uh, like, people talk about when we talk about processing, although it, it it's like totally counterproductive when people object to processed food because, of course, when they say, I object to processed food, and somebody says, well, canned tomatoes are processed foods. And, they are, right? And, yeah, they totally are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, this, is, this is crazy, but because I'm so ignorant, I actually went to Wikipedia. And I started reading about, you know, there, this is pro primary food processing, right? Because, like, what isn't a process? It says, this category includes ingredients that are produced by ancient processes, such as drying, threshing, winnowing, and milling grain, shelling nuts, and butchering animals for meat, right? So, like, right. basically, unless you're, like, eating the cow, like, biting into it, you're, you're processing it. it. It also includes deboning and cutting meat, freezing and smoking fish and meat, extracting and filtering oils, canning food, preserving food through irradiation, candling eggs, homogenizing and pasteurizing milk. I mean, it's basically anything. Okay, so let's, let's start by acknowledging that civilization runs on processed food. Because if we all had to do all of our own food processing, it would take all of our time and probably then some, and we wouldn't get to do things like have podcasts. You, nobody <laughs> there could, are a lot of processes. <laughs> there are a lot of processes. And in fact, my good friend and historian, Rachel Loudon, is a, is a, a sort of an expert on, on this issue. And she's done a lot of research just on the time people, and by people, I mean women, spent grinding grain. And until modern times in most parts of the world, and still in some parts of the world, women, she, she estimates that they spent five hours a day just 
grinding grain. So it's, you know, as we'll get, we'll get into the bad stuff about processing, but before we do, we have to acknowledge that this freed up people, and by people I mean women, um, to do things other than the drudgery involved in getting food ready to eat. So that's a huge win for society, uh, obviously, and particularly for women. And I think we should say that most of these original food processes, they had a purpose, right? It wasn't like just, you know, people were messing with food for the for the heck of it. Of course it. not. It was twofold. So the purpose was storage and safety. And there were lots of processes that, you know, killed both of those birds with one stone. Things like salting and drying um, made food safer, but it also made it last longer. And interestingly, and this is a little bit of an aside, a lot of these processes were developed for the military because that's where the need was most acute. If you have an army on the march, feeding them is very difficult, and having stored food that will last was critical. In fact, you know, there's an interesting history of canning. It came about because Napoleon offered a cash award for somebody who could come up with a good way to preserve food. And a French guy named Nicolas Appert came up with it and he won the award. And that was the beginning of, of food canning. That's amazing. And again, we talk incessantly about food waste. And food processing does have a climate impact. It comes out to about 3.5% of our, uh, you know, of all food emissions come from, you know, whether they're putting it through emulsifiers or extruders or whatever, you know, it is an industrial process. Um, but we should see that if, if it's preventing food from spoiling, that has a kind of positive climate impact. It's a total win for waste because it makes food less perishable. And anything that makes food less perishable is is a win on the waste front. You know, it doesn't answer Charlotte's question, but I think we, we have to put it out there. Okay, let's get to the bad stuff. And, you know, the first bad stuff was that I we found out sort of the hard way that when you processed foods in particular ways, in ways particularly when you refine grains that take some of their nutrition away, you can end up with deficiency diseases. In fact, um, in Japan and in other parts of Asia, beriberi was a huge problem among the wealthy because they ate white rice, which had had a lot of the nutrients, including thiamine, stripped out of it. And so we learned sort of the hard way that when we take these nutrients out, we can expose populations to deficiency diseases. And so, you know, we learned pretty early on that you had to put some of that stuff back in. And so things like thiamine to prevent beriberi, niacin prevents pellagra, um, vitamin D for rickets, vitamin C for scurvy, we put that stuff back into foods um, because we want to avoid those diseases, which are now essentially very, very rare in the right. developed so world. So presumably people who say, yuck, I hate processed food, it's the root of all evil, they're not saying that because so many people are getting scurvy. They're presumably, they've got, a, they've got another problem with That's it. That's <laughs> exactly right. The problem is ultra-processed food because food processing was really good up until it wasn't. And uh, it wasn't when it started to be used to create foods that were sort of nutrition-free, 
calorie-dense, high in the things that people like, like sugar, fat, and salt, and flavors. And those foods started replacing wholesome, more whole-ish foods, again, minimally processed foods. And so there's a guy down in Brazil, Carlos Montero, who has done a lot of work on trying to codify what exactly is ultra-processed food. And he has come up with a classification scheme that everybody argues about. It's called the NOVA uh, classification of food. And and it basically has four categories. The first is unprocessed or minimally processed. So there's your canned tomatoes, your frozen vegetables, your whole banana or potato that had nothing done to it, the, you know, the steak that's just been cut. Second is culinary ingredients like butter and oil and sugar. Um, third is is processed food that is usually a combination of group one and group two. So you add a few of those culinary ingredients to those minimally processed foods and you you get a processed food that's recognizable as the food. Like canned fish, Mike. I know how much you like canned fish. (laughs) That goes in the third, the third, uh, uh, category. But fourth is the one that we're talking about. And I'm I'm going to read the definition that he came up with for ultra-processed foods because I, I don't want to give it short shrift. Um, ultra-processed foods such as soft drinks, sweet or savory packaged snacks, reconstituted meat products, and pre-prepared frozen dishes are not modified foods, but formulations made mostly or entirely from substances derived from foods and additives with little, if any, intact group one food. And of course, you know, we can argue about what exactly falls into that category, but that's the stuff that we're talking about. Well, let, let me ask you, because certainly when people say like, oh, processed food is making us sick, processed food is making us obese, um, you know, processed food is killing us all, um, it, they're presumably talking about the really bad stuff, you know, the Twinkies, the Spam, or, or whatever. And I'm wondering, we think of ultra as a sort of modifier that means very. Mm-hmm. Is the amount of badness related to how much it's processed? That is, as I believe Frank Zappa would have said, the crux of the biscuit. So here's the question that I think we really have to answer for this whole processed food argument to make any sense. Does the degree of processing correspond to the degree of badness? And I'm going to say it doesn't. You know, it's related But as a proxy, it's not that great. And I can rattle off a few examples of foods that are are more processed, that are better than foods that are less processed. For example, that Bonza chickpea pasta, that's highly processed by any, that's ultra processed by any definition. And that stuff is better for you than white rice. And now here, this is where I piss everybody off. Diet soda is better for you than homemade lemonade that you make with actual sugar. And like supermarket whole wheat bread is better for you than, you know, the baguette you get from the the delicious bakery that, you know, just has three ingredients. And so 
the degree of processing doesn't correlate cleanly with the degree of badness. And that is where this conversation tends to go off the rails. I think that's really important. And again, this is your insight, but something that really stuck with me is that you told me that, you know, obviously potato chips, really bad. Doritos, really bad. But potato chips are minimally processed or only somewhat processed, while Doritos are like completely fake. They're extremely processed. Um, And that, to me, suggests that there's something has gone really awry with the whole discussion over processed foods. If potato chips aren't that processed and Doritos are, you know, extremely processed, but we're pretty much pissed off about all of them, then to me, somehow what we're angry about isn't the processing. This is, I think, the part of this conversation that hopefully we can bring some clarity to. So tomorrow, I'm going to keep pressing you on this a little bit because, um, you know, it's it's clear that processed food, ultra-processed food, it's often just used as kind of a synonym for unhealthy, right? And clearly, a lot of it is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as clearly, it's not just the processing that makes it unhealthy. So let's kind of Drill down a little bit, because you mentioned a few things that it seems like a lot of processed foods, they shove in a lot of salt, they put in a lot of sugar, they put in a lot of fat. Um, is that is is this just a way of saying that, like, you know, we hate processed foods because they've got that particular crap in it? I think there are three ways that processed foods can be bad for you. And the first two are the ones we spend all of our time talking about, but I think it's the third one that's the real problem. So the first one is the one we already touched on, um, which is that we're taking good things in foods out of foods. We're taking nutrients out. We're taking fiber out. And we know that that can cause deficiency diseases, although, you know, we've sort of taken care of that in the developed world. And it's certainly possible that beyond those, you know, beriberi and, and scurvy, that there are other health problems that can happen because we're not getting fiber and those nutrients. But it's sort of hard to tell. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But first, I want to get to the second way that, f- that processed food can be bad for us. And that's because instead of the stuff that's taken out, it's the stuff that's put in. And, you know, you mentioned salt and sugar and additives. And, you know, can those be a problem? I think absolutely they can, especially salt can be a problem. I think it's one of the reasons that we have a salt problem in in the developed world. Um, And, you know, some of those other additives people think might be dangerous. There's certain dyes that people are worried about. People are worried Ooh, about... red dye number two. Uh, re- right. Remember red dye number two? And now there's <laughs> there's a yellow dye, too, that people are worried about as far with kids and ADHD. People are worried about, you know, emulsifiers. People are worried about carrageenan. People are worried about, you know, nitrates and, and nitrites. And the difficulty is that for those first two ways that food processing can be bad... It's really, really hard to study because when you look at people who eat a lot of processed foods, they tend to have worse outcomes in all kinds of ways than people who don't eat a lot of processed foods. But of course, we all know that people who eat a lot of processed foods are different from people who don't eat a lot of processed foods in many ways. And if you're living a stressful hand-to-mouth existence and you rely on processed foods to feed yourself and your kid because you don't have a lot of time, you don't have a lot of money, 
There could be all kinds of things about your life that can affect your health outcome. And so those first two ways, it's sort of maddeningly difficult to, to quantify whether or how much processed food does us harm. But the third way is the elephant in the room. It's the one we don't talk about enough, and it is the one that makes processed food obviously a problem. And that is the fact that it is absolutely designed to be overeaten. It's designed to be irresistible. It's designed to be cheap and accessible and delicious and everywhere so that you eat more of it because food manufacturers are in the business of getting you to eat more. And guess what? They have billions of dollars to do it and they do it successfully. And the problem with processed food is that it gets overeaten because that's that's its job is to be overeaten. And so it contributes to our obesity problem. And that is a problem that has all kinds of health consequences. And that's the third way and the most important way that processed food can be a problem. You're going to have to explain a little bit, uh, a little bit more about, you know, why we're supposed to be up in arms about this, because presumably every Michelin chef is also trying to make things delicious. And presumably anybody who's ever made a product is trying to make stuff that people want to buy a lot of and consume a lot of. Right. So, yeah, the good thing about processed food is that it's cheap it's convenient and it's delicious. And the bad thing about processed food is that it's cheap, it's convenient, and it's delicious. And it's 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 kind of difficult. And this is why we don't talk about this very much, because it's it's kind of difficult to wrap your mind around the fact that the thing that makes it good is also the thing that makes it bad. And but you know, there are a couple of books that that are great that talk about this. Michael Moss's uh, Sugar Salt Fat. Oh, is it salt, sugar, fat, or sugar, salt, fat? And uh, uh, Mark Schatzker's The Dorito Effect both delve into uh, the how food manufacturers try and make food irresistible. Because you're totally right. If, you know, being cheap, convenient, and delicious should be a good thing. But if it's too cheap, too convenient, too delicious, and we overeat it, it turns into a bad thing. And so the problem is this, this sweet spot of ubiquity, cheapness, convenience, and deliciousness. And yeah, chefs are striving to... <laughs> are you, what are you eating? Oh, you guys, Mike... I have in front of me some popcorners. We've all got our addiction. You're basically saying that these processed food manufacturers are are selling crack. If, they're, uh, they're totally selling crack. Well, let me tell you, this it is impossible to eat. You know, I I, mean, I could polish off this bag in seconds. I'm going to rest my case right here. <laughs> well, look, let's start with like what makes popcorners horrible. Presumably, is not just the fact that they're processed, right? And it does, they're not necessarily more processed than you know that chickpea pasta that you mentioned. That's actually kind of good for you, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so so what's in here? What did they do to this to make this 
so freaking awesome. So it, it's so interesting. And and I really recommend those two books because it, it sheds a whole lot of light on it. And and that, you know, one of the things to think about is just, okay, think about the, the difference between a regular corn chip and a Dorito. So a regular corn chip is is not that processed. It's a tortilla that's been fried. But then once you add these flavorings, that that magic orange dust, they become irresistible. And and so it is this combination of fat and salt and sugar and flavors. And so here's this is a great example. You have this these what are they called popcorners? <laughs> I've never had those. So you have popcorners and you have bonza chickpea uh, pasta. They're processed to you know roughly equivalent degrees, but the popcorners are a problem because you just open the bag and eat them. Um, and it's hard to stop. The chickpea pasta is not a public health menace because you cook it, you have to put sauce on it, and it's a substitute for a product that people love that has less nutrition. So it's supposed to sub in for regular pasta, which doesn't have as much flour or as as, as much fiber or as much protein. And so this is sort of the key to getting us back to this whole faux meat, faux cheese, faux animal product question. So it does seem to be this sort of disconnect in the way we talk about processed food. Um, There's clearly something bad about it that has to do with the kind of way they get you with these these flavors. And yet, even though we have problems with gas guzzlers, we don't say to the makers of the Cadillac Escalade, like, hey, don't make that car so awesome. Right. And and this is exactly right. So first, the first part of that question is, okay, um, in order to be a public health problem, Food has to tick a bunch of boxes. It has to be irresistible, but it also has to be those other things, you know, cheap and convenient uh, and ubiquitous. And so that's why, like, when I make my absolutely delicious chocolate cake for my husband's birthday, it's not a public health problem. And it's not even really a a problem for us because I make it once a year. I have to actually make it. But if I had it sitting in my house all the time when I could have any at any time, it would be a problem. So it, it has to hit the sweet spot of all of those things to be a problem. And you're totally right that every company in every sector is trying to make an awesome product that people wanna buy. And if it's like, you know, shoes, the downside can be that people spend more money than perhaps is prudent for them on shoes. But there aren't health consequences. And food is in a special category because there are health consequences to food in a way that there aren't health consequences to most other products. So ultimately, what we're really talking about is sort of unhealthy processed food, right? I mean, not all processed food is horribly unhealthy, um, but most horribly unhealthy food is processed. And so the fact that they make the 
particularly horribly unhealthy stuff irresistible creates a uniquely damaging set of health problems, um, which is why we're upset. Those those foods, those specific foods that are designed to be irresistible, that are convenient and cheap, they are the perfect storm of fat and sick. And yet that sort of understandable anger over these particular kind of processed foods has leaked into this general processed foods are bad that has affected the market for these alternative proteins, particularly the, you know, the fake meats that we're banging our spoon on our high chairs trying to get people to take a look at because we want to save the climate. And what's the sort of irony is that they don't seem to be irresistible enough. They need to talk to these processed food guys and figure out what the heck they're putting it in that in these popcorners that makes it so freaking addictive. All right. Let's talk about whether this processed food objection applies to these fake meats and fake dairy products that are designed to replace meat and dairy. And I, you know, I kind of have to start by saying that objecting to processed foods, given our food environment, is a totally reasonable thing to do. And the idea that we should be eating real foods, whole-ish foods, is as a foundation of a healthy diet, is also absolutely true. And so the the people who are objecting to these things have, a, you know, a great deal of right on their side that, you know, given what the choices are, starting with with wholeish foods is the best way to go. And I say it myself all the time. Seems like kind of a sleight of hand argument, though, when it comes to the fake meats, right? Right, it is. Right. You see your, your people saying like, you know, these Beyond Burgers, these Impossible Burgers, they're not real food, they're not healthy. And of course, that would be true if you were comparing it to kale. Right. But compared to beef, right? We, we did all show, they're not that bad. When you look at a processed food, You have to ask yourself, okay, why was this processed food invented? And let's go back to the chickpea pasta. Because chickpea pasta was not invented, you know, to get you to eat it out of the box and and not stop. Chickpea pasta was invented to replace a product in our diet that isn't particularly healthy. And that's regular pasta. So by using chickpeas, they have more protein, more fiber. And it's supposed to make the meal that you're eating with pasta more, uh, make it better for you. And that's why it exists. Whereas if we look at why Twinkies exist or why, you know, ramen, instant ramen exists or why Doritos exist or Lunchables or hot dogs, um, the, the answer is it's to get you to eat crap instead of other stuff and to eat it in quantity. So the purpose of it is to get you to eat more. And so if we look at faux meats, you you have to look at why they exist. And the reason they exist is because the people who are trying to sell them to you actually bona fide care about replacing beef with foods that have smaller environmental impact. At least some of them do. 
And certainly, I think we agree that the founders of Beyond and Impossible are both really committed to that, do we not? Absolutely. And they're both, you're right, they're ethical vegans, they want to save the world. But I guess we've we've gone back and forth in this, you know, offline. But to me, the sort of, the motives don't matter that much. The product kind of has to stand on, alo- on its mm-hmm. own. But that's where, you know, the kind of, the criticisms of, you know, a Beyond Burger and an Impossible Burger as sort of ultra-processed food, it sort of seems like a category error. They're trying to tell you it's a Dorito um, with when there's no evidence that it's anything like a Dorito other than that they're both processed food. So so if you pick up a label, uh, a food, a meat product, and it has ingredients like, here, I have a list, hexanoic acid, Two pentylfuran, anserine, methionol, methylpyrazine, delta nonolactone. Presumably, I hate delta nonolactones. You run screaming in the other direction. (laughs) But the fact is, those are all chemical constituents of beef. And everything we eat is made of chemicals. And the problem is that people trust it when the cow is doing the synthesizing, right? Right. I mean, I've always said, like, what goes on inside a, inside a cow, that's a process. The way they turn grass into beef. But as you also say, it's a mature technology. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. it, is, it has been tested through the ages where people have been eating it and not dying, or at least not dying quickly. <laughs> and when scientists... They can isolate all of these chemicals, and they can reconstitute them into something resembling beef. The problem is they can't do it very well. And could they— They're getting better. They are getting better. Could they screw up and make something dangerous? Yeah, they totally could. There's no question that they could. But there's no evidence that they have. And the only study I know— that does that, that compares, you know, that actually fed people fake meat versus meat and then, you know, took their blood and tested all kinds of stuff. It was done by my Christopher Gardner out of Stanford, showed actually better results for the fake meat than for the regular meat. And of course, the study was funded by, I think it was Beyond. So to take that for what it's worth. And I'm not going to make the case that fake meat is better for you. In fact, you and I have had this conversation too. I I don't think fake meat is ever going to be better for you than real meat and still be a realistic replacement because it's some some of the components of of meat that taste good are fat. And and so I think that's going to be a hard, hard trick to pull off. But I don't think it's worse for you. And this objection that I'm not going to eat this, you know, gross processed food, I would prefer to eat this whole food from an animal resonates with me because even though intellectually I know that these faux meats are perfectly fine and I'm perfectly happy to eat them if someone prepares them for me, um, I am not at the stage where I bring them in excuse me, bring them into my own home and cook with them because I have a visceral objection to them as, you know, highly processed kind of crappy food. I I cook with whole foods. I'm of that, you know, eat real foods demographic. I care about this stuff and I 
understand the objection, but I think our heads have to override our guts in this particular instance. That's right. And let's remember, like, you know, cows eat processed food too, right? The most important thing I've learned from you about this stuff is that the continuum does not go from minimally processed and super healthy to super processed and super unhealthy. Um, that there are sort of jags along the way and that the real, you know, the, the real problem here is not food processing as a technique um, or not one particular food processing technique. You know, the problem is that certain processed foods are crap and- right irresistible. Um, and that combination has been really bad. You're totally right. And and here's the thing, because, you know, food processing is, does enable these bad foods, I understand this impulse to correlate degree of processing to, with degree of badness. But it's so funny when you read the NOVA classifications, it's like Carlos Montero, is he knows the foods that are bad already, and he's right. trying to design the categories so that the bad foods are in the last category. And like that kind of defeats the purpose. If we already yeah, exactly. know which if, ones if are bad. If you're just going to define ultra-processed food as crap, right, then why don't exactly. we just call it crap? Let's just call it crap, which is what I I just call it. So, but then your question, okay, what do we do about this is a really important one. And I think, okay, let's start with the things that make processed food dangerous aren't just the formulation of the processed food. It's the cheapness, the convenience, the ubiquity. And we are faced with these foods 24-7. If they weren't in our face all the time, it would be easier to eat less of them because I wasn't thinking about popcorners till you pulled them out of your desk drawer. <laughs> and then, but once you start, like, uh, we're not in the same room. But if we had been, I would have had to have some of those. Oh, and, and you wouldn't have had just one. <laughs> exactly. Once you pop, you can't stop. So, one of the ways, and I, I've been shouting this from the rooftops for many years, I think we have to tackle the food environment to make sure that these foods aren't everywhere um, all the time because three-quarters of American adults are overweight or obese. And, you know, we can argue about the point at which how overweight do you have to be before it starts becoming a health issue. But there is a point at which it starts becoming a health issue. And we have diabetes uh, cases to prove it and heart disease and certain kinds of cancers are linked to obesity. And and it's an urgent, urgent problem. Um, but as you say, this is food manufacturers selling deliciousness, and that's what people want to buy, um, and they know that. So in a free society, it's really hard to see your way clear to uh, to how to fix this. I mean, do you have any policy ideas? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, the first thing I do think we should say, like, two things, I guess, is first is, wow, it's going to be really hard to fix this problem, right? But then two, like, Sometimes really surprising things change, right? Uh, and so, you know, we've talked in previous shows about the way you're starting to see corporations take take climate seriously. You're starting to see um, even, you know, individuals more take climate seriously. Um, perhaps, you know, people have like a more immediate 
incentive at least to take health seriously. Um, and you could imagine the culture changing. We have, you know, what if meatless Mondays, mm -hmm. who knows what'll, you know, happen with, uh, you know, crapless Tuesdays or something. <laughs> um, you don't know. But, uh, but again, this is sort of a long-winded way of saying that you know, maybe this is a public policy problem that we have to think about. We always talk about it with like, you know, that when we talk about laws, we say like people don't like to see, you know, laws made just like sausages, right? right? Well, maybe if people knew how sausages would made, they'd, they'd, they'd eat fewer, fewer sausages. But I guess one thing that did occur to me um, is, look, like we have a consumer product safety commission that when you hear about, you know, like a car seat doesn't work right, um, or, you know, some toy, you know, snaps and, uh, and injures a, a toddler, um, you know, it's like total recall. <laughs> we have zero tolerance for that kind of stuff. And then meanwhile, you know, we're eating crap that's killing like millions of and, us. No, it's true. And, but it's, it's such a problem because, of course, if you're the food companies, you say, well, you know, a bag of Doritos isn't going to do you any harm. It actually, it infuriates me because on the one hand, these companies are specifically designing these foods to be overeaten and putting them everywhere to make sure you overeat them. And on the other hand, they're justifying not regulating these foods by saying, well, a bag of Doritos isn't going to hurt you. And it is the most two-faced, uh, infuriating stance. But there is, there's one thing this this is, I think, actually probably maybe the most likely solution, not because it's likely, but because all the other ones are less likely. Um, and there is a small group of people who could stop this in its tracks, and that is food scientists. And if food scientists, all those people working on processed foods, rose up and said with one voice, we're not going to work on the Flamin' Hot Cheetos brand extension. We're not going to make another sugary cereal for toddlers. We're not going to work on a product that is specifically designed to undermine people's best intentions. If they decided as a guild that this was something they shouldn't be doing, it wouldn't happen. And in, do I think this is likely? No, I don't. But I do think, and there, you know, I I wrote about, you know, selling crap food to children, and I find that particularly heinous. But I do think that the food scientist community has a responsibility here, and they have ab abdicated it. Well, that's interesting. Look, I mean, I think some of them are voting with their feet and going to some of these, you know, alternative companies that are trying to trying to do something different. But, you know, just as automotive engineers have not risen up against, you know, sort of climate killing, people killing SUVs, um, I think it's it's probably asking a lot for, uh, you know, to expect an entire, you know, genre of scientists to sort of, you know, revolt against big money and big food. Um, but I guess one thing we are talking about, since, and, and maybe this is what you do when you've, you're out of solutions and you're throwing your hands up in the air, is we're talking about kind of an ethic of responsibility. Um, and presumably that's something that, you know, not to be too dorky about it, but, 
you know, parents have a role, supermarkets have a role, food companies have a role, maybe farmers have a role. And yeah, certainly, you know, food scientists and uh, and the people who work around them have a, have a role as well, marketers. But it does seem like on a certain corner of the processed food world, this is sort of everybody knows stuff. Um, and yet there hasn't been a everybody ought to ethic um, when it comes to this stuff. In some ways, what you said about the ethic of responsibility brings us full circle. And I want to, you know, sort of end going back to Charlotte's question about these vegan cheese products. I mean, the people who are trying to sell you Doritos um, are trying to undermine you. And at least some of the people who are trying to sell you fake meat and fake cheese are bona fide trying to make the world a better place. And that's why those foods are different. So I guess what we're saying is... (laughs) Eat better food. Oh, Grunewald. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to know what you're thinking. We want questions like Charlotte's about the things that occur to you in the grocery store, ways you're changing your diet. Bring us your thoughts. We're at 508-377-3449, or you can email us at climavores at Postscript Audio. Your question might be on an upcoming episode. The show is hosted by me, Tamara Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Managing producer is Cecily Mesa-Martinez. And Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate your coming back to us. Uh, The best way you can spread the word is by giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if you have somebody else who you think would like our show, please pass them a link. And we'll be back again next week when Mike will have a different snack. 